optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is always my job to deconstruct world-class performers of various types and across many disciplines. And today we have Liz Lambert on the show. Liz, thanks so much for taking the time. So happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you finally in front of me, and I'm going to give people a little bit of context. So who is Liz Lambert? Liz Lambert at the Liz Lambert at Instagram and Twitter. First purchased a CD motel on South Congress Avenue 23 years ago and transformed it into Hotel San Jose, which has become known today as the quintessential Austin Hotel. The success of Hotel San Jose, which sparked a revitalization in the city's now-thriving South Congress District, which we'll definitely talk about, led her to launch Bunkhouse Group, a hospitality company founded on the pillars of design, music, and community-driven experiences. Since then, she's expanded Bunkhouse's unique hotel portfolio to include El Cosmico, which has been recommended to me about a thousand (laughs) times, the community lodging concept in Marfa, also a place worth talking about, the iconic Austin Motel, a renovated Motor Court Hotel, and Hotel St. Cecilia, where I was just two nights ago, in fact, a 14-room secluded estate in Austin, Hotel Havana, 
Havana, depending on where you are, <laughs> the historic property on San Antonio's River Walk, and most recently has added Bunkhouse's first international hotel, Hotel San Cristobal Baja in Todos Santos, Mexico, and the first non-Texas property, uh, domestically the Phoenix Hotel, to their hotel portfolio. Lambert and Bunkhouse also operate Joe's Coffee, the popular Austin coffee shop, which I frequent myself, and that currently includes three locations and an east side event space fair market also located in Austin. They really gave you a full... Oh, we're know. covering all the bases. <laughs> Lambert's fourth Austin Hotel, the Magdalena, is currently in development and is slated to open on South Congress in 2020. Maybe 2019, we'll see. Maybe 2019. Wow, ahead of schedule. That's unusual, <laughs> well, I would imagine. <laughs> it's a moving target. And there's so many places that we could start with this, and we have some mutual friends, uh, which, which makes me always a bit more comfortable and excited to jump into things. But I thought we would begin with the last days of San Jose. Now, this is a documentary, and I hold you fully accountable for keeping me up <laughs> Way past my bedtime. Oh, awesome. You saw it. I, great. I, I've watched most of it. I haven't seen all of it, I'll be honest, uh, because I had to go to bed v- last night at some point. There's to a get... surprise ending. I Not can't. really. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a documentary on Hotel San Jose's origins, and I thought I would share a note from my assistant. So my assistant doesn't add notes to much of my prep documentation at all. And this is her note. Quote, I've watched most of the documentary on and off throughout the day. Just listen to her talk to the humanity of people at the San Jose. It tells you everything important you need to know about her. And I wasn't sure quite what that meant. It, it was, seemed a bit cryptic. And uh, I have to say, A, very impressed with the doc. B, you must have captured so much footage. And uh, you did a really nice job of editing for emotional impact i I was was, that wasn't me by the way okay i didn't edit and i never could have edited that and i never would have been in the doc had it been my (laughs) your choice (laughs) could you tell people who don't know and i imagine that's a lot of people a a lot of people yeah i never released it about the doc and why didn't you release it i I was trying to find it online so i could I, i could push it out to people you know it's terrible it is every year this is one of those things every year it's on my list to do and i can never so this is a documentary, and I'll tell you why I talk about it, why I never did. Um, this is a documentary that I did when I first bought the San Jose, which I used to be a lawyer. It was sort of a change of career inadvertently. Um, and I bought an old motel down on South Congress. <coughs> I have terrible Austin allergies today, so sorry about that. That's okay. I was, uh, we were chatting that this is audio verite. Yeah, yeah totally, truthfully. <laughs> um, I bought an in the mid nineties. I bought an old motel down in South Congress. I was a lawyer at the time, and I'd basically just walked up to the door, knocked on the door, and there was a Taiwanese couple there that owned the motel. And at the time, there was nothing on South Congress, which is, as you know, a very popular area. Super hot spot, cool area, very hip. But it wasn't a car on the street back then. I mean, Mm. honestly, and. they were about to put the motel on the market, and I sort of, you know, pers- I told them, don't do that yet. Let me see if I can do something about it. I ended up buying the San Jose, not knowing anything about what I was doing. For $500,000, my mother co-signed a note, and suddenly they handed me the keys, and I was on, on my way. And I knew nothing about running a hotel or a motel or anything. knew nothing about business, really. Now, paint, paint a picture for people... I- 
as to the the clientele and what was the, the kind of the state of affairs because people think South Congress now and they're like oh cool yeah, right. I can no, have no. fancy Japanese food and I can go have a go have some mezcal and oh no 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 it was dicey I mean people didn't go down there at night there were no businesses on the street this Continental Club was there and had been there since 1957 and it remained um, but really there was no place to eat. The first Schlotsky's was actually on South Congress, really tiny place, but there was nothing down there. And I had moved back into the neighborhood, and um, but I would go to the Continental Club a lot, so sit on a bar stool there. And I've watched the San Jose across the street, which was an old motor court built in the 30s, uh, Spanish colonial revival style, painted seafoam green at the time. And it looked like it was empty, but it was really because there were people. It was full all the time. But it was 30 bucks, 25 to 30 bucks a night, and nobody really had luggage or cars, <laughs> and nobody really came out during the day. So it looked very quiet. But at night, it was teeming with life. And it was, you know, there was your, it was junkies and prostitutes, and, but a lot of good people, too, that were just down on their luck for one reason or another, couldn't pay a deposit first and last month's deposit or somehow something in life had happened that dislodged them. But, you know, they could get a hotel room for either a couple of nights or some people lived there. There were residents that lived there permanently, but they just paid by the day or by the week. I have so many questions. I could do an hour just on this huh. dock, and it's not obviously because I have anything to gain financially from pushing the dock because it's not even available. So I was going to uh, tell you why it's not available. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I shot the dock, which was following – as an undergraduate, I was a creative writing major with a concentration so, in poetry. So, which so just for background for folks, and this is, this is my, my nonlinear style, I apologize uh, – where did you grow up, and where did you do your undergrad? Yeah, um, I grew up in West Texas, mm-hmm. and I did my undergrad. I started at TCU in Fort Worth. I had a brief stint at Stanford, and then I finished at UT. It's a way of seeing the world there. And creative writing. And humanities. And, and creative humanities. Writing, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot, with a concentration in poetry, so I had a lot of friends who were writers or who... Um, you know, I wrote a lot at the time, even back then, just whether it was journaling or poetry or whatever it was. And uh, friends would encourage me to write down. When I, I stopped my law job at some point, when I knew I, I, I knew I was in over my head, at, mm. or in in a good way over my head at the San Jose. But I needed to do something with the motel. I couldn't continue on at thirty dollars a night with people stealing sheets and bleeding on sheets and burning sheets. And, you know, like <laughs> you name it. Um, but I people kept encouraging me to write down things that happened during the day because I would tell stories at dinner. I'd go to fr- dinner with friends, and it would be absolutely absurd or yeah, within crazy. The, within the first five or ten minutes, you see a, yeah, quite a, a few examples. Yeah, so I um, I didn't have time to write it down because I was literally like, you know, the the place the place had been redone in the 70s, I think was the last time. So it had shag carpet still. So you can imagine as you tried to vacuum that shag carpet what it was like. I mean, there were definitely people... It was definitely a place where you did drugs. It was definitely a place where you had whatever homeless pet you might have. I mean, it was just like... There was the housekeeper that had been at the motel before I bought it. There were a husband and wife, the Sues, who were awesome people, but they were the only employees besides... Mr. Wu, 
who I swear to God was like two years older than God and b- almost blind, and he was a housekeeper. <laughs> so, like the state of the rooms when I, we got there were just—I mean, a thing to behold. And uh, and I cleaned rooms for quite a while. So I was so busy that I wasn't writing things down. There was no journaling. There was no that kind of thing. But I did find a camera. It was right when those little pocket cameras came out. There was a little Sony PC7, mm-hmm. and um, I got one of those. So I just started talking to people. People knew the camera was there. I put it up. The front desk had a little glass thing that you slid money through, and I just duct taped it to the front for a while. And then when I would go out to knock on doors or kick people out or collect money, because it wasn't like you came and paid on a daily basis. You really, I had to chase down money. And so I would just take it with me. And um, when I was done, I was really lucky at the time that I had a friend who was um, at AFI, as a, in cinematography. What is AF? Uh, uh, American Film Institute. Got it. Uh, her name is Jen Lane, and she just now is a producer of the new Queer Eye that's oh, been no really kidding. super popular. Yeah. And um, she was one of my good friends, and then she had a friend named Uta Brieswitz, who is a, a producer now as well, but a very well known uh, cinematographer before she became a producer. She shot the first three three seasons of The Wire, and that's why The Wire looks like it does. Wow. So, so they were both in film school. And they came down, and I said, you guys come help me shoot, because they were both uh, directors of photography, what they were studying. And they were awesome, because not only did they shoot some B-roll, and then when I was ready to shut the motel down, they shot the last three weeks. But Uta also encouraged me. You said um, audio verite. That's exactly what she told me. I was really worried about a big microphone and stuff, but nobody would have talked to me. Right. You know, like, she was like, and don't worry about your film style. Just talk to people. And the story is compelling enough. And that was, those were words of wisdom. And it, 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 as long as you could hear it, right. you know, it was going to be okay. You didn't need a huge microphone to stick in somebody's face. Just make sure it was audible enough. So you have this... You have some incredible footage, and I mean, you really do capture. I'm searching for a word besides humanity because it seems too high concept, maybe for 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 what I'm trying to convey. But you you captured the the vulnerability and the sincerity of so many different types of people of all different colors of all different types who are completely marginalized, discarded. These sort of invisible people, and. Uh, I watched this and I was having just a bitch of a day yesterday and I was feeling sorry for myself and I was talking to friends and we were commiserating about various things and I've had a, what I would consider in my life a, a, a bit of a hailstorm of a week. And then I watched this and I was just like, you asshole, <laughs> God, you should get down on your knees every day and just th- you know, thank God that you have the bed that you have to sleep in, that you have the food that you have to eat. It's, it's, it was really humbling. And you're holding this footage. You have these stars to be helping you. Why not put it out? I got busy. I mean, here's the thing. I will so, help you put this thing I out. Mean, let's do that. I would love that. It's, it's, uh, the last three years, it's been at the top of my list. And I keep having people that say they'll help. And then 
you know, everybody's busy, and so it yeah. becomes. I'll this, make, I'll, I can. I will commit right I'm, now publicly that I will help you I'm put it out. So it, happy about yeah, that. It's, okay. It's it's very as long as you're not expecting like a a full blown red carpet theatrical release. No, if you no, just no, want it no, to be available to people, I just want it to be available. So what yeah. happened was, right when it was done, it, it you'll see the the doc ends as I close the door when we close the San Jose. We follow during the. The footage, uh, well, during the documentary, we follow five or six people that are permanent residents at the San Jose. Again, I was just shooting on the fly, kind of keeping a video diary, and so I would turn the camera on myself every once in a while. I never, even when I began editing and realized I couldn't edit it, I had 90 hours of footage. I mean, there's so much good stuff in there, but there was no way I was going to be able to tell a story. So another friend of my friend Jen's from AFI, Tina Gazzaro, who's works in the business still today uh i hired her to edit but i didn't have her edit until about four or five years into the san jose being open Uh. and so it was hilarious because she would see people that might have passed through the footage or the documentary and they would have no idea who she was but she spent hours and hours with watching them and, you know, she would be, hey, and they'd be like, yeah, you know way too much about me, that kind of thing. But she did an amazing job, and she gave compelling reasons that I should also be a character in the movie. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't just about, it was also about my story and about me living there as part of a community and the struggle I was having. Everybody had a struggle, different struggles, but, you know, one of the remarkable things is that um, they're all behind me, the, mm-hmm. the folks that live there generally. So can I, can I pause for a second? Yep. So there are a few like lily pad hops that I want to know more about. So first is you went to three places for undergrad, focusing <laughs> on creative writing with an emphasis on poetry. Mm-hmm. Why did you go to three places and how on earth do you go from there to law? Let's start with that. Um, I went to three places because my family were – I'm from West Texas. My my parents met at TCU. My grandfather played football for TCU. My dad played football for TCU. My oldest brother played football for TCU. Everybody in the, in the kind of cousin group, everybody went – started at TCU. And I got there, and Fort Worth is a lovely place. I'm crazy about Fort Worth these days, but I always knew it wasn't really going to be a fit for me. Um, and once I kind of got interested in creative writing, the program there wasn't that strong. So my tour of colleges. Yeah, so, so, so Stanford, you were saying, was aspirational, and you went there for summer school. I went there for summer school, and then I, I, I was accepted into uh, as a regular student at Stanford, and I deferred. Um, I, there were things going on with my family that I needed to come back to Texas, and um, once I came back, I... Just in terms... If you're comfortable saying, I mean, yeah. just in terms of sickness or... Divorce, my parents. Divorce. Yeah. And um, I was really close to my mom. And so it was... I felt like I needed to be closer and I, you know, deferred a semester and then I ended up just going to UT. I always loved Austin. And, if, you know, in the long run, I'm really happy I did. I mean, when I arrived in Austin in God, the early 80s... It felt like the place was made for me. You know, it just felt like home. I what used, about it? You know, I'm a Texan through and through, and but there were a lot of reasons that I didn't really fit 
comfortably into other parts of Texas. Yeah. I was gay. At, at the time, I wasn't even out. And I was a little more creative, maybe. I just, I haven't found my place in mm. Texas, except for West Texas. And, um, you know, Austin, it was the state capital. The university was huge. It was, you know, this liberal place and a more conservative state. And the blueberry the music, and the, the blueberry and, and, and the tomato soup. And, the tomato soup. <laughs> and then and the music was amazing and there were rivers and lakes and you know, it's it was I felt it felt like home. For those people who have never been to Texas and there are certainly lots of international folks listening and they have the, they may have the image of, certainly of the cowboy hat and the boots, but that's about it. <laughs> uh, when you say Texan through and through in other respects, for, for you, what does that mean? I'm from West Texas, and you know that's there are a lot of people that grew up in Texas and never even make it to West Texas. It's a big state for the you guys who don't know. I mean, although Jeff Bezos, maybe unbeknownst to many people, is very would be one of those people right in the middle of West Texas. It's a good place to launch a rocket ship from. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you know, it's uh, I, I, I'm I think sixth or seventh generation. In the ranching business, my family still ranches, cow and calf operation. And so there was a certain way Texas, I mean, Texas is like another country for some people. It really is. I mean, I have friends. The Republic of Texas. That's right. (laughs) And that comes with a good and bad. But for me, mostly, it's a a good thing. Is there a friend of mine asked me when I was young uh, and traveling, he said, when people, if people were to ask you if you were in Europe, uh, where are you from? I would say West Texas. He's like, that's early on. Most people wouldn't say that. They would say, not only you say Texas, you give the region of Texas you're from. I'm like, well, West Texas is so different than East Texas, you know? It is a enormous, enormous state. Yeah. Uh, so you end up in Austin. How does the law come into the picture and why? I've, well, so as, as I said, I was a humanities major, right. which I'm forever thankful for. And, uh, not, and then I doubled down with the concentration in poetry, which is, you don't, you know, they're not looking for poets out there, I don't think, so much. Um, and so I, I applied to go to, I, I could go get my MFA, was really the path I was on. And I Your applied, graduate degree in, in writing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I a, applied to one program at Sarah Lawrence and didn't get in, and I was like, okay, what now? I knew that I was going to need a little further education or some other direction. So actually, the first thing I did is I got an internship at Texas Monthly and worked there for... I then went on to work as a as a paid... I don't even know what it was. Paid employee, I guess, at Texas Monthly for about a year and applied to law school during that time. My father always argued that... Um, Law school education was something I'd never be sorry about, and it was actually the best liberal education you could get. Do you agree with that now? I do, actually. You know, I was afraid at the time that it would kill every bit of creativity in me. You know, that it would somehow learning to think logically would dampen my ability to be creative. And I don't think that's true at all. So you, f- you finish law school. Mm-hmm. Do you work in the law profession before... Hotel San Jose? I did, indeed. So I went straight from law school to the DA's office in Manhattan and worked there for uh, three and a half years or so, and then um, moved back to Austin and worked at the Attorney General's office. So I was a trial lawyer. 
Um, and again, something I'll never be sorry about. I made amazing friends that I'm still in in touch with on a regular basis, from a, from a text thread to uh, occasional reunions. Um, but it also taught me how to think in a way that uh, has served me really well in business and in just in the world. Um, it, it teaches you a form of rigor, I think, to be a, a trial lawyer, to understand all the facts of any situation. And, uh, yeah, and to put it together. So understanding the facts, then, of your situation at the time, if I contrast, contrast isn't the right word, it sounds too judgy. If I look, <laughs> at, if I look at your path side by side with the paths of other former lawyers I know, which are many. A lot, right? <laughs> right. So maybe they they say, I, I don't want to do law, but I'm going to do management consulting. Or I don't want to do law, I'm going to start a company with my friend or go to business school. There aren't many who say, I don't want to do law, I'm going to buy a hotel that's that's full of drug addicts and prostitutes <laughs> and so on. So how, why that particular choice? How did that how did that come to pass? Yeah, I think partially it was serendipity. Um I was in the right place at the right time, on the right street. What appealed about it to you? Because I mean, for a lot of people, that would be it would have the it would have a repellent effect. (laughs) But for you, it had an attracting. Well, if you think about it, I had come from the DA's office, and a lot of the work I did was with a, a lot of the same. I don't know exactly where that concentric circle is, but you right. know a lot of the people I dealt with in New York and in the criminal justice system, that you know, whether it was from a police ride along or just looking at the stories of people every day down and out or in, with, in trouble or you know with, when things get cross in one way or the other in their lives was not something new for me in that way. And I wasn't scared of... The you know junkies and hookers and um, you know the, like I said again there were a lot of really good people there but were at a, at a moment in their life which lives. is really clear in the doc yeah. which is part of the reason why I, yeah it's going to get released but there were a lot of <laughs> that's right <laughs> but there were a lot of people hustling and whether that be a good hustle or a bad hustle and I'm a big believer in hustling but there was some pre- I got there were some pretty good grifters in there as well but so it wasn't unfamiliar milieu for me um but i always was interested in design um it's something that i uh had always enjoyed and um, my brother one of my brothers was um it worked for icf international contract furnishings um kind of like noel and um was i, I wish had, i knew Noel. <laughs> no no like uh, noel is a business that makes um <laughs> That uh, probably started in mid-century. Uh, it was known for Florence Knoll and uh, may, issued a lot of classic uh, furniture that I you see. would see. And, you know, like Mies van der Rohe did stuff for Knoll. Or, Got it. Yeah, okay. Um, design. Mm-hmm. He was in design, I should say. <laughs> um, and so it's a world that I was always fascinated by. And uh, there was really not this clear path. It was... I, I've and I've also always been inter- I've always loved hotels. Did you dislike law? Um, you know, I I actually really liked the DA's office. I liked um, criminal law a lot. I've there's a line in a Carolyn Forche poem where she says, "There's nothing no man won't do to another," and 
that's fascinating to me, like why we do what we do and why does our criminal justice system do what it does and respond to the human condition the way it does and, you know, what are our rules and laws. Um, I found that fascinating. And I also like trial work. I like talking to a jury. I liked the, I liked the whole, uh, not just pageant of it, but the actual truth-finding mission. I like, also like, um, I liked being a lawyer where it wasn't, a lot of people think that it, the DA's office, their, their whole purpose is to f- get a conviction or, you know, be an arm of the police in one way or the other. And it's not. It's really to do justice or to do the right thing. And that's an amazingly powerful thing. You know, a lot of people with my politics would have probably gone to the public defender's office. Can you explain why that's the case? Well, because... Why is that the case? Why do people with more liberal politics go to the public defender's office? I think that the the... DA's office is often seen to be in like alignment. The, the pit bull. Yeah, and in, in alignment with police, the police. And, you know, you've got to, to do, you know, to fight the good fight, you've got to be the person that, that is um, on, the side of, on the side of justice in the way of making sure that the constitutional principles are upheld. And you're down in the trenches with folks that often are sometimes wrongly accused and... So it it tends to separate out that way. But at the time, I really thought, when I was in law school and thinking about uh, going to a DA's office, that um, it made sense to go to the place that had the power. And the prosecutor's office is the place where you can choose to bring a case or not, right? I I was also the first openly gay person hired at... uh, Manhattan DA's office no in kidding. 1991. Yeah, wow. crazy. 91. Pl- plenty of queers there. Yeah, but first nobody, openly. Oh yeah, openly. And so the first year that I was there, we actually marched in uh, the Manhattan Gay Pride Parade, like right behind the the police department and in front of the fire department. And my girlfriend at the time was. She worked at the Minority Task Force on AIDS. So, of course, she was, like, marching with the House of Africa. <laughs> and they were, like, having a blast. And I was there with the DA's office and the police and the fire department. She'd be, I'd be like, come march with us. And she's like, no. Hell no. no. I'm having too much fun over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So that was, uh, you know, and there was a lot of things that I, you know, you could talk for hours about that and, and you know, what I learned and, and um yeah, I guess I'm just curious why why stop? I mean, a lot of people stay in law for a very very long time. So you did have this moment. You're at the Continental Club. You see Hotel San Jose across the street. You have this deep interest in design. You have empathy for the people who are mostly not seen right, right. indoors during the day. There, right. you have all of that, but you also have this potentially safe career in the legal profession, right? so why stop? Well, there were a couple of jumps between there, but so I stopped at the days of us, you had a three-year commitment, and so I stopped about three and a half years in, right before you go on the homicide chart, I think in year four. I came back to Texas. I think if you stay in New York too long, you become a New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Speaking of someone raised in Long Island, you have to be careful about that. uh, You have to be very, very careful. Yeah, you don't want that to happen to you. So um, I came back here and worked at the Attorney General's office, and that was a little bit different. I was traveling all over Texas trying cases, and um, 
and it wasn't as fascinating to me. Um, but I still like being a lawyer. And I, but I, a couple things happened. A friend of mine uh, died of AIDS-related causes, and that was a real um, jolt to the system. It was one of those moments where it was I felt you better do what you want to do and not what you're supposed to do, or you know this is your one life and your one chance. And so I think I think that probably happens for a lot of people. You face mortality up close for the first time and that's either you just kind of push it away or if you really invite it in and and grapple with it I think it's a life-changing thing it's so it was for me it, it made me I always wondered about the San Jose down on South Congress and I would look at it and kind of dream about it a little bit but that was the thing that got me out of the chair and across the street and knocking on the door to find out if they'd ever sell it. And uh, we, we, could, we could spend the entire conversation just on the first few months of easily, the first month, the first day of your experience at San Jose. And I'm struggling with where to go to next because I kind of want to stay there. But, but uh, maybe what, what I can do, since it's sitting right here, uh, is talk about Christopher Alexander and certainly the other authors. But I'm curious how you found your footing and your approach to doing what you now do. And so you kind of land there. Right. Oh, my God. You're doing every possible job. I mean, you're using a Absolutely. toothbrush to take some god-awful stuff out of a <laughs> sink. I couldn't even identify what the sludge was. was uh, you don't want to know. Like, Yeah, you don't want to know. I mean, syringes and... I mean, you, you're doing every job imaginable. How do you figure out your playbook? And when does, when does, when does Christopher Alexander, not to overweight the importance of, uh, of these books, but uh, for those people who are watching, you can see this is a book called A Pattern Language, Towns, Buildings, Construction, uh, which has come up a surprising number of times on this podcast. Has it? It has. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, well, so at the time, I, I, I thought that I was going to take the San Jose, which was a 24-room motor court built in the 30s down on South Congress, an area of town that was it was still pretty abandoned. It was one of those places, that, and not unusual at the time, that there were urban cores that when highways had come in, it had redirected traffic, and those small kind of mom-and-pop stores and urban downtowns were bypassed. But there, you know, obviously there was a lot of interesting architecture still, or buildings uh, that, that were, because they were older, or... Um, and built at a time where they were on a really important avenue. So Congress, for those of you guys who don't know, is a main thoroughfare in Austin that leads directly to the state capitol. And at one time, it was the main avenue that went all the way to San Antonio, probably 60 miles to the south. And so it was a, a major thoroughfare. So there were a lot of old buildings and businesses, historic and otherwise, uh, along the way. So I thought that I would just redo this 24-room hotel, motel. What I didn't realize was that it was 30 bucks a night, that if I were, my idea was maybe it could be $75 and we could just redo it room by room and then it would be this amazing place, 
close to downtown. I had lots of friends that would, you know, from musicians to creative people to people that were going to visit their friends in the neighborhood that would stay there. Once I started trying to crack that plan a little bit, I realized it was a marketing nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) That most people that were going to pay 60, 75 bucks were on the highway and they wanted something that they can rely on like a Motel 6. And I was, you know, if I did lure somebody downtown onto South Congress where there were no other hotels, they weren't going to want to stay next to the crackhead <laughs> next door. Mom and Pop in their van didn't want to rent next to somebody with an arrest for, war- for murder. <laughs> I mean, a, warrant arrest, a warrant out for murder. Um, so, I mean, it was true. You saw a little bit of the documentary. Did, yeah. yeah, The police were around. I remember when the police first came, they would drive around the San Jose because there was a big courtyard that was just a parking lot. And when I first got there, I was like, no, no, don't do that. That looks bad for business. And by, you know, is there a week? And I was like, can you guys come more often? <laughs> but um, so I started to realize that I would go and get new things and kind of try to redo the rooms one by one. And I'd get something new and it would be stolen or I would get, you know, like it just wasn't going to work room by room. I finally realized. Yeah, there was some footage also where we're like, what happened to the TV? Like the TV's <laughs> destroyed. And like, oh yeah, the last person who was in here left a gift for the new person. <laughs> Every one of these is a fucking mess, but they're saying it's a fucking mess. Let's see what's in here. And it's but, like, oh You know, God. and it, it's one of those things. It's, it is, if you clean something up, people are much more like, if you respect people, people are much more likely to respect a place or a thing. Or a person. And the people that were living there, I mean, it was, you know, the bed, the mattress was uh, bed springs that were, you know, cutting you at night sometimes. So it wasn't like, of course you were going to like throw a TV out the window, you know? Yeah, like, right. it, was a, it was a cycle that was, uh, that I'd really, now I had this place. Now I was trying to keep it afloat. I had to have a plan. And my plan at 24 rooms with, not much money wasn't going to work and then I started going to banks to see if I could you know I I had gotten through school without even taking a math class you know and so now suddenly I needed to understand the basics of business or writing a business plan and I couldn't read a spreadsheet I didn't I couldn't read the financial statement. I didn't know what you know all of those small numbers meant and suddenly it was became really important that I learned that skill and so I, I went and audited some classes at the business school at University of Texas. It has a great business school. And I took some management and the service industry classes. And I tried to finally work my way through how to do a business plan. And it was so hard. You know, I do it, we do them all the time now. And we, you know, do studies and we do market studies. And, you know, it's, it's a skill that I rely on as we look at different hotels and different markets now. We do it all all the time, and it was such a foreign language to me. So then I finally got through a business plan, and I was had to go try to convince some banks that they should loan me a bunch of money to redo this motel on South Congress, which at the time you couldn't convince a lot of locals <laughs> to even set foot on <laughs> South Congress at night, much less spend the night down there. Yeah. So it was a process. So what? I, so what happened? This is a cliffhanger. <laughs> I finally um, got. I, I finally took on some partners that uh, believed a bit in 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 the idea, and so that gave me some 
they had some track record, so that that gave me some legitimacy. How how on earth did you convince the the first person? Because yeah, Banks, so Banks are saying thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, but people were intrigued though, so I could get. You know, remember I was a lawyer, and so I was I was really selling it, and there was a change afoot in Austin. You could feel it in the air. People were starting to return to that neighborhood. Um, there there was it was a time that. It was in the mid-90s, and there was starting to be some urban infill downtown. And so I was right on the edge of, of that being not completely implausible. Um, but it didn't help that I had absolutely zero experience running a business. I mean, that's what really got the banks. They're like, what? I'm like, no, I can do it, I promise. <laughs> like, that's not good enough. If you enough. look at my poetry resume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, it took a local bank at the end of the day. A guy named Eddie Safety, who was at um, it's now Prosperity Bank, um, but it was Liberty at the time, um, basically to underwrite it. But it also was remarkably inexpensive. The work we did uh, in the in the bigger picture is something that we would never get away with now. But I was there all day, every day. I was really lucky to have Lake Flato, the architecture firm, out of San Antonio, now also out of Austin to be my partners and believe in the project as well. So I hate to bother you with just halting the story and jumping into the nitty gritty, but these are such important inflection points. If you don't get the money, ostensibly not good things oh, no. proceed from there. So we're talking about liberty and then prosperity, both good words. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. How do you convince that person? How did you convince them? What was the conversation where they're like, okay, <laughs> how does it? How I mean, I also applied for an SBA loan, and I finally got it. It was partially funded by the SBA, right. so that that was great. I have a business partner now that I'm still in business with, who is a great guy and had had a lot of experience in business. And his wife had brought him the pro forma for the San Jose. How did she get it? From a friend of a friend, basically. It got passed around somehow. So you were just yeah, totally. Just in Anybody case, let me get these into circulation. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Again, I didn't know what I was doing, right? I didn't know, you know, so it was just who knew who. And she brought it home and wanted to invest, and he he still has the copy of it because when it, when it showed that we would get $110 a night in year three or so, he wrote in the margin of the pro forma, no way. <laughs> <laughs> he totally didn't believe. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> How, I don't know how I you know I'm tenacious and um I I I don't know how I finally convinced the bank. I again they did take a leap. Um I'm sure there was some kind of personal guarantee that I didn't even know what a personal guarantee was at the time. <laughs> I'm like sure take it take my blood. I mean at that point I thought about selling the San Jose. It probably took 2 years to really close about in 95 we closed in 97 to uh, December of 97 to start renovation. So it had taken all that time. I quit my law job just just to go try to find money to do some kind of renovation. And in the meantime, we decided to... So just just so I'm clear, so you were doing your law job uh, simultaneous with running the San Jose up to that point? In the beginning. And then at some point, I realized I had to go work behind the front desk, and I quit my law job. Um which was crazy too. You know, I have to give it 
sh- you know, my, my mother's been gone for about five years now, but I can't believe that they didn't think it was the craziest was fucking thing you. I'd ever done. I mean, like making no money. I, my father would have pointed out that it was just at the point I became a really good trial lawyer that I just jumped ship, you know, which I, I guess, you know, I don't know. Even in hindsight, I don't know, but I, that I, had, that I felt compelled in some way. Again, I'm really dogged and really, you know, I'm going to follow it down once I decided that it, that's what I wanted to do. But I got to say, there were nights, I don't know why is it always nights, that I laid awake and really thought about selling the San Jose. Probably two or three times I got really serious about it. I thought there's no way I'm ever going to be able to do this. It's too hard. And um, I just somehow powered through. Why didn't you sell it? Who would have bought it, right? <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> that, is a, that is a fair answer. So you, so you finally get the money. You close for renovations. What do you do? Is there anything that you did that you no longer do? Were there things that you oh did God. where you're like, oh, that actually became part of my palette as an artist, so to speak? Yes and no, yes and no to both. I mean, there, there are ways that... Um, it was extremely inefficient. Um, that nobody would ever let me do what I did then. Now, but you know, it was it was I was learning on the job. It was also really low risk. I mean, when you think about it, we look at in in, in the hotel business. You look at the price you pay per key when you talk about selling or buying a hotel. Per key, yeah, per key, so, per key, per yeah. key per room, per room. So the the general notion is um, when you're talking about what a hotel is selling for, what you're into it for what you can develop it for, whether it's a good deal. Um, you, ta- you take the total price of the project from the land, all the soft costs, all the hard costs, all the working capital, everything you have in it to get the doors open, all the furnitures, fixtures, equipment. Put that in a bucket and then divide it by the number of rooms. And that gives you the price per key of what the hotel cost, if that makes sense. It does. So, yeah. yeah. So... I, we were into the San Jose at the day we opened the doors for $100,000 per key, which is super inexpensive. Um, if inexpensive? Inexpensive. Okay, got it. At the, at the end of the day. So it was low risk. I mean, and I was on the front lines. I'm sure, again, I had a personal guarantee, and I was there every day working like crazy. And Lake Flato, the, the architecture firm that I've worked with, repeatedly since um, or they were also there every day and so again okay the question was are there things that I did then that I uh, would never do again and then are there things that I did then that became part of my palette um, yes and in, in looking back on it I think what I did intuitively there is something that we do as an organization on a regular basis now, whenever we're looking at a hotel. And that is to say that um, I was interested in what the neighborhood wanted and needed in something. The, the place had been there since the 30s in, in this South Austin neighborhood. And so I wanted to look around and look at the, the hotels that are most interesting to me are part of a neighborhood or part of a community. There's the places, when I was growing up, my granddad, who was a rancher, didn't have an office, so he would go to the local hotel and sit in the lobby and 
do business deals and you know, get his shoes boot shined, get his hair cut. You could do that in the lobby of a hotel. It was a place where people met, and whether you were from out of town or you were a local, oftentimes, you know, like a real cornerstone of the community or a real important place to meet for the community. Um, so those were the kinds of things that interested me the most. So one of the first things I asked is, how do we serve this neighborhood and South Austin? And, you know, one of, obviously, the first things when we were directly across the street from the Continental Club. So what do musicians need? And Because at the time, musicians were some of uh, our most frequent guests when we were 30 bucks a night. Because, you know, they were coming through town in a van, and they were looking for a cheap hotel, and a lot of times they might be wasted enough that they didn't notice how bad the bed was or the carpet <laughs> or anything else. And then we always also had people that were spilling out of the Continental Club sometimes late at night. But, um, and the, the, the neighborhood was starting to change and people were starting to um, buy homes downtown again or in Travis Heights. Um, we also started a coffee shop that opened, my brother and I did, uh, months before the San Jose opened. And that, again, was a need of the community. So you were looking to fill the need. That's what drove it. It wasn't, we want to make a coffee shop. It is, what do people need? Right. People need a coffee shop. Let's do a coffee shop. More than that, we needed a coffee shop. <laughs> uh, this is a really, I want to underscore this because it, it comes up so frequently in people who ultimately succeed in some capacity in entrepreneurship is it so often starts with scratching their own itch. Mm-hmm. And at least I that way, you true. know, you have a market of one. <laughs> it's not complete. <laughs> maybe two. Maybe yeah. two. It's not complete <laughs> speculation. Right. So not to interrupt, but no. So it, when when you think of uh, a pattern language and you think of Christopher Alexander, um, what I was doing intuitively this gigantic book that those on audio <laughs> the can't is see. Big. It, it's it's big. <laughs> you, you bludgeon a badger with it, but yeah. <laughs> um, the what I was doing intuitively was. Uh, a lot of what uh, for the, for those of you who don't know, Christopher Alexander is uh, is a writer and a thinker um, about architecture and about how we build, um, and and more than that. But for me, he he wrote a book called "A Timeless Way of Building," which I have not read. Yeah. yeah. And, and he wrote a pattern language, which was basically his idea was looking at all the old villages and uh, towns and um, communities that were, you know, throughout the world that have been there for centuries. And his point was that people figure out how to build intuitively, um, more so than current at the time and probably today, current architects today who are responding to how a thing looks rather than how it functions. And he's, his argument is, or his thesis is, that we know intuitively you know, where to put a fireplace or a hallway or you know, a hub-and-spoke model in a small community because it f- it's, it's those ways of building that make uh, a place feel more whole and uh, more complete and makes you as a person feel... Uh, more whole and complete. It's sort of, he calls it, I think he calls it the, the quality without a name. Yes. I was, so could, the, the quality without a name, what does that mean? Well, what you, does it refer to? Well, you know those places that you've been to, that uh, buildings you've been in or 
places you've been in where it just feels right and it it feels um calming rather than agitating it feels um like you are part of something in a in in a bigger sense and i think you know part of that would be you know today we people design things today this happens all the time that they've never even been to the place where the tuscan village in the suburbs is going to be put you know like you're his argument is that you look around you and you see how things are built uh, in the place you are, and you look at you don't bring uh, building materials that would never exist in a place. Um, you you look at the ways of doing things that have been done for a long time, and that way you become the fabric of the place itself. Yeah, this book is so simultaneously intimidating. It is. And fascinating. I mean, I just turned to a random page, 599, activity pockets. <laughs> and there's a diagram with the average number of people, area of 150 people to 300, oh wait, no, P must mean something else, 300 something square feet. And it's looking at the placement of umbrellas in what looks like an Italian <laughs> pavilion. And there's another section, yeah, a pocket of activity which bulges into the square with a picture from Italy. And then there's a separate section. I was actually looking at this. Uh, because I had a uh, cabin construction project not too long ago. And there's a section on the integration of outside and inside. Right. Well, okay, so I don't think that the book actually is... I think you're reading it in the right way, meaning you should not sit down and read that book from cover to cover. Oh, my God. I mean, it really is something that his... You know, he became... uh, uh, And he's still around today, but he became a software... uh, what would you say it is, a designer of software. Mm-hmm. His idea is about patterns. And so patterns are a thing that happens over and over again you see in the natural order of things. So if you're talking about an Italian plaza where the umbrellas are, think in your head how many times you've seen that. Well, there's a reason. That there, there's a reason. People on the ground design that themselves because that's where human activity went to. When we were doing El Cosmico, which is you uh, describe that because El Cosmico has probably been recommended to me by Texans uh, more than any other hotel. And then there are Austinites who do staycations at some of your places. But let's describe El Cosmico because when when I did the introduction, how did I describe it? But but I think the the community lodging concept. So what, <laughs> it, what when you were designing El Cosmico? I don't mean well, to interrupt, but no, that's quite all right. I, I, El Cosmico is a, it, now twenty one acres in far west Texas, which uh, in in the city of Marfa, town of Marfa, um, considered one of the darkest places in the United States. It is. Um, Marfa is one of the darkest places. It is um, also about a mile high, about as high as Denver, and it is uh, more clear nights and clear days than your average place. So you, and it's one of the, there's no real, um, the, there's very little light because it's uh, such a sparse uh, area of the country. I mean, In terms West, of light pollution. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So if you think about it, there, there's two main um, counties out in far west Texas, Brewster and Presidio. And I, there's something like, you can fit like 17 Rhode Islands into one of those counties and the, I forget what the number is, but the per capita, the acreage per capita per person 
well, that's a redundant, but is enormous. Like you have, every person has something like four square miles. <laughs> you know, it's just like sparsely populated, not not a lot of cloud cover, and not a lot of light pollution. My, yeah, so for that reason, my understanding is that uh, astronomers, or amateur astronomers, but with nearly professional grade equipment or professional equipment travel from all over the country to go specifically to Marfa. That's true. For the new moon and things like that. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's incredible. You can see the Milky Way, which when I was growing up, we could, you could regularly see the Milky Way. And how often do you see it now in places that aren't like Marfa or like Baja, California, or you just, we, there's too much light pollution. We just don't see that anymore. And you forget what an amazing feeling that is in the order of things to see another galaxy. So you have 21 acres. Okay, so I digress. <laughs> There's 21 acres. Uh, we're right on the edge of Marfa. It's a town of about 2,400 people. And um, I had done a small motel in Marfa and it called the Thunderbird um, and, and walked away from it. It was a bad partnership. Um, we it wasn't going anywhere and i but i did know that i wanted it was interested in marfa as a community marfa as a community my again my family ranches in the region i'd moved back from new york i really wanted to spend more time in far west texas and marfa was a little bit on fire if if you can say that for a community of 2400 people because donald judd who is um you know one of the tw- 20th century's most renowned sculptors uh, was uh, had, had made a home in Marfa, and it had become an art mecca for um, a lot of folks. So you have this crazy mix of artists and creative people and ranchers and people that work on the land um, in this beautiful place that for those of you guys who are uh, from overseas might think of it as the myth of the American West when you see those when you've seen giant or you've seen um, movies westerns the the landscape we're talking about looks a lot like that just stretching on forever in distant clouds so um, El Cosmico uh, I bought this uh, pasture basically that was on the edge of town and I wanted to build a, a hotel or a lodging experience of some sort there and uh i realized that it needed to be indoors and outdoors because that's one of the reasons you go out there and um i didn't know exactly what i was going to do again at the time but realized that uh old trailers vintage trailers were a great way to get started putting hotel rooms up quickly and so i bought a few trailers and we redid them and i started falling in love with trailers of that of the like 50s 60s time period because those old spartans and vagabonds and things like that are made with this beautiful birch interior it was before they were making airstreams with i you know i don't even know what the walls of uh, interior of an airstream are but they trailers of that vintage had these beautiful wooden interiors i mean you felt like you were in the belly of a ship or in a ship's cabin, and they, we finished them with a yacht varnish at the time, and so it was this. It was like these. We put the first few trailers out there. And it was like ships on the desert, you know. And and I just fell in love with the whole notion of these um, uh, kind of nomadic ways of living. 
and so we got some yurts eventually. We got teepees. We have safari tents. And it became this grand experiment to see how we would use the land. So all of these, all of the rooms were movable. And so we kind of lived our way into it. That comes back to Christopher Alexander in a pattern language. It was really starting to have music festivals and parties there and people living out there to determine what did the place need and how would people use it. So we've been talking about the outside-inside integration, uh, and Christopher Alexander gives some great contrasting photographs for illustrative purposes. It seems, based on the homework that I've done at least, that you also think a lot about, well, I'll quote here, <laughs> and the internet misquotes a lot, so you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but it's, it, here's, here's the quote. And it, this is part of a, a longer conversation, of course, but I hate it when I visit a hotel that hasn't put thought into the products they place in their room. It's all part of the language of the place and the details that affect the guest experience there. So if we, if we look at El Cosmico, or you could choose a different example, what are the things that people might notice in inside, inside and and outside, um, and outside, yeah, sure. You know, for I think for us at Bunkhouse, part of it, it is a whole experience. Like being at a hotel should be, and you think of some of your favorite hotels. It's not that you liked the bedspread, or it was close to the highway. You might have liked both those things, but I think probably the places you like the most are the most immersive, and you. I think of it as storytelling in a way. So every hotel that we do has uh, everything from a soundtrack to oftentimes a color or a color scheme that that, um, repeats throughout, uh, a smell, an incense usually. Like at the St. Cecilia, we put Nag Champa, big sticks of Nag Champa in the garden. So as you're walking through the courtyard, it's really subtle, but it's something that strikes your senses and you, it will remind you of the St. Cecilia. Of all the smells that you could possibly choose, why did you choose that? <laughs> well, the St. Cecilia is a small hotel we have um, off further back in the neighborhood off of South Congress. It's Very good selection of tequila also. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, it's, it's only 14 rooms, but it was a, the main part of the St. Cecilia is an old Victorian that was built in the 1890s. And then it has some bungalows that are scattered around about an acre, an acre and a half of land. Um, and w- I, I, in order for us to do a hotel, for me, there has to be uh, a skeleton, a story that everything is hung upon or uh, proceeds from. And so my business partner at the time, we were looking, uh, the St. Cecilia came up for sale. It wasn't the St. Cecilia. It was just an old Victorian on an acre of land near um, downtown Austin. And he's like, what's the story here? You know, it's like you had to describe this to somebody. And for me, I mean, it was, I, I always loved that whole period of rock and roll that was about going to really nice hotels and s- the super decadence, not the throwing the TV out the window, but the, you know, great silver, slightly tarnished in the white tablecloth from room service, and the contrast of, you know, Dylan taking tea somewhere or, you know, drinking a bottle of whiskey, the stones at Nelcott. Um, just that there's something so awesome about where elegance kind of meets rock and roll. And so there was this Victorian, and I felt like the, that I'd seen a photograph of, like, 
maybe it was the Stones, somewhere in like full on 1970s, um, awesome, uh, you know, clothing. And there was a chauffeur, you know, washing a Bentley in the background kind of thing. And so this place where those things met immediately became the St. Cecilia to me. And St. Cecilia was a patron saint of music and poetry. And so if you ask where Nag Champa comes from, it's like that, that smell of Nag Champa is the, is the hippie smell of that time. And, and putting it in a place as elegant as the St. Cecilia makes perfect sense to me. So many questions. <laughs> so I, I would think of myself in general as at least an aspiring minimalist when it comes to certain aspects of design and uh, certainly have very, very limited experience compared to someone like yourself, but have, have had projects, one in San Francisco before I moved to Austin, where this place was stripped down to the studs and just became an art project. And uh, I've spent a lot of time in Japan, so it was uh, sort of a combination of like a green and green Esalen type feel plus Japanese. And uh, it's a very simple in some respects. And I have a particular dislike of, of clutter, I guess, even though it's an ongoing battle <laughs> in my own house. So I think it was your brother who said the following, and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but let people be the color in the room. Could you expand on that or sure. explain what that means? It was my brother, Lyndon. Um, some of the best advice ever. Um, I think that, you know, you look in hotels at any point, I mean, particularly, you know, last 20, 30 years, I'd look at some place and I'm not given a bad shout out, but, you know, the loft or something or the indigo. And they think design is fun and whimsical, and it is, but oh my God, how do you sleep in a place? How do you walk through the hallway? You're just assaulted by so many different patterns and so many different, like what people think is like cool or hip or, you know, now. And it's just like a constant onslaught. Um, and to me, the best hotels or the best places are places that are more calming. Um, and so um, doing things through massing or through a pattern where you you know, take um, the language of a place and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. It may be so subtle that no, that people don't really notice. But I think if you give people a pl- all of our own lives are so cluttered in so many ways. Um, but if you strip away everything to a certain degree um, and let the people be the color in the room, it's infinitely more interesting. I think people feel better about everything that way as well you know when the san jose is was the first hotel i did and we, i kind of think of it as uh J- mexico meets japan is for you guys who don't know it's um we did a real sort of minimalist um job on the place at, at the time we just we developed uh, a furniture system that would work in um, in the rooms because all the rooms were very different uh, over the years they've been cut up in different ways so we needed something where we could uh, use something repeatedly throughout. And we ended up using some uh, pine, loblolly pine, which is a local-ish material from uh, East Texas, and um, in sort of a Judd-like way, Judd being the Marfa minimalist, although I know he would hate the word minimalist. <laughs> but um, which I think the Judd is very informed by Schindler. And I don't know if you know Schindler. Schindler is an architect from 
the 20s that was working in the L.A. area, but very influential and with a very a simplicity. And so the San Jose has concrete floors. Um, where we took out walls, we put in an aggregate so you could see where the walls used to be. Um, when, could you explain what that means? Yeah, so when, when you um, have uh, old uh, cement or concrete floor, a lot of times when you remove a wall, you'll have a hole in the floor. So what we would do is we'd take um, a, a concrete mixed with rock and uh, fill it in and then um, and then sand it. So there was, instead of trying to fit in with the existing floor, you could actually see the remains of the... The footprint of the dinosaur. Yeah, exactly. And so um, the San Jose, though, although it's very simple with just wood and concrete and some people would think of as cold, uh, there's a ton of plantings, a ton of gardens. It feels really lush and feels sort of like living indoors and outdoors. But um, when it, we have comment cards, and early on I really paid a lot of attention to comment cards, and I'm sure the staff does now. But one of my favorite ones that I had up on the wall for a while was somebody had written... This is the most expensive fucking garage I've ever stayed in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you do in response to something like that? Or do you not, are you like, you know, not everyone's going to get it and that's okay? It was really hard at first because not everyone was going to get it. And you have to decide if you want to please everybody or if you just keep doing what you're doing and know that intuitively there is something that you will find your audience. Um, and again, I was very lucky in life to be in the right place at the right time because Austin was changing. And when we first opened the San Jose... And now, just to not discount your skill set completely, I mean, you're in the right place at the right time, but you've also now... How many, how many properties do you have? I don't know. Um, maybe eight, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> once you're lucky, twice you're good. Eight times... <laughs> Okay, but continue. Yeah, okay. So, but, you know, but at that time with a first project, you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know. I have a lot more confidence now. Right. I mean, I had confidence then, but not necessarily as a designer. Um, but I remember when we first opened, we opened, we opened in March, which is um, a spring break, but it's also South by Southwest, which is a huge conference. It used to be more music centric, but now it's tech and film and a lot of people d- descend on Austin there's it's, not yeah it's got to be I don't know the exact size now but it's got to be 50 to 100,000 yeah so there's guess. not a hotel room in town well we sort of did a soft opening which is crazy but uh, ev- ev- what does that mean soft opening is where you invite people to that, you, that might be friendly towards you <laughs> or at a very discounted price to a property or a restaurant and let let the staff practice on you knowing there's going to be some mistakes um so, so you we, did your south opening during south by well right before it was like february 14th <laughs> and i remember february 14th was the first day that we had in, so it was valentine's they had anybody that actually spent the night in the hotel and i put a banner outside that um we sold rooms for 69 dollars for valentine's day <laughs> And so that was a special. And I mean, like, trying to just get people in the doors was, uh, was the whole point. We opened during South by Southwest, totally sold out. Crazy, because, of course, we had something in the, something was in the uh, waste pipe that was going to the street, like, 
an electrical fixture had fallen down into it. So the entire wing of the hotel flooded oh, with sewage. God. You know, people were running out of the hotel with their stand-up base or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and there was no place to put them. But, right, what do you, all right, so it's in the middle of South By, complete chaos. Yeah. Uh, everything is stretched to max capacity. Yeah. I, I'm sure that stress is running high for a lot of people who have flown in to perform or whatever. So you have sewage flooding half the hotel. <laughs> How do you handle that? I don't know. I mean, you know, you you have to be on the front lines of it and with rubber boots and the whole thing. And again, really, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hospitality. Yeah. yeah. I mean, usually people don't know this, but behind the scenes, we, you, a lot of places overbook knowing because they're counting on cancellations yeah, it's like airlines yeah. yeah exactly and so you, uh, hotels you know the hospitality business is really interesting because hotels really are behind the scenes usually most likely want to be friends with each other it, you know you can say it's competition but you're sharing information all the time yield management and what's going on in town and um it just so you know a rising tide raises all boats to a certain degree but you're also going to have to walk somebody sooner or later to another hotel, which means that you're going to you're going to pay for their room somewhere else because you've either overbooked or made a sewage mistake or had sewage flood the rooms. Yeah, but there was no hotels to walk anybody. I don't know how we managed. It. So, so I put what, it out of my mind now. You've blocked it, but if, if you it. try to unblock it, though, is there any? Uh, what do you say? Did you get them to stay? They're not sleeping on the street, presumably. No, so. I think we did get them to stay. I think that we well, went in and cleaned like crazy and disinfected like crazy and remade the rooms, all hands on deck, completely. Do you comp the room, oh, yeah. discount? Yeah. yeah, totally. You know, they say in the service industry, a good recovery is going to make a bigger, uh, more loyal guest than if you hadn't fucked up at all in That's the beginning. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. Because you'll tell 10 people if somebody really makes something right. Right. Well, I mean, because everybody's all smiles and high fives when everything is going smoothly. Right. And it's like, how, how do they handle things and do they own the problem when things go sideways on their watch? Kind of hard not to own that one, wasn't it? <laughs> that is hard not to own that one. How dare you flood your own room with sewage? Uh, Chip Conley. Chip Conley is someone we we both know. Uh, Chip, if you're if, if you're listening or somebody passes this along, miss you. Would love love to see you. It's been a long time since I've spent time with Chip, but um, I've heard you describe him as a mentor. I don't know if that if you if or I haven't heard you. I've read it, so who knows <laughs> if it's accurate. But could you describe for folks who don't know the name who is Chip and uh, what what have you? learned or gleaned or observed from Chip? Oh, so much over the years. Um, Chip is a mentor to, to this day. I saw him last week. Um, for those of you guys who don't know, Chip uh, started a hotel company called Gerard de Vive that was based in San Francisco. Um, and he started when he was fresh out of business school, probably early 20s. The Phoenix was his first hotel, which was a motor court, not unlike the San Jose or the Austin Motel. Um, and was uh, a favorite of bands on tour, musicians, that kind of thing. Chip continued to grow a very successful hotel company and decided at some point in his around 50 or so, I don't know how it was Chip when he sold Joie de Vivre. 
It might have been might have been right afterwards. I remember I was at Chips. We didn't talk about this Burning Man camp. For I was fifth, too. Oh, oh, no kidding. Yes, so we were. I this, totally was. Yeah. All right. So what was it? Maslatopia. Yeah. So so I was. That's crazy. It's the only time I've ever been to Burning that's Man. That's really funny. I would have one of the yurts that was, um, you know, the fold up air conditioned yeah. yurts. Of course I did. Uh, <laughs> that's wild. All right. So we were at the same camp at yeah. Burning Man and just didn't bump into each other. Uh, or maybe we did. Who at the who knows? Like the, the catered chip food, <laughs> which, by the way, I mean, it was such a contrast. My first experience—not to digress too too far—but my first experience at Burning Man was trying to build a geodesic dome with my friend on the spot that we had put together based on internet instructions <laughs> when I was in San Francisco. And then realizing none of it would fit together, <laughs> we ran out of water. The RV we had broke down so the air conditioning didn't work it was just it was absolute survival mode and then adversity and and then i came to (laughs) to chips and i was like oh my god this is like the four seasons of it was so i mean like he really he did the whole camp with some friends and basically you could get food at any point you wanted there was a full service bar i had an air conditioned yurt and you know it was only like six feet across and it was made out of uh, some kind of building. It was like fold up. The whole thing folded up into a very small package. But it wasn't a bad way. I kind of in and out. Yeah, that's so wild. I can't believe we were yeah. there at the same time. So, so, so he sold the he company sold, around he 50-ish. Sold, yeah, yeah. sold Joie de Vivre. He's still a very young man, by the way, if you're listening, Chip. And um, he, the guys from Airbnb tapped him on the shoulder and said, come help us a little bit. And what was helping uh, in an advisory role for a while, he became the head of global hospitality for Airbnb. And along the way, he's written a lot of great business books that um, we often have our managers read, like Peak um, and uh, the, uh, the Emotional equation what is that book called yeah you know well I'll, I'll if people i'm blanking on the title but i will tell people that uh chips chips been on the on my blog a few times and if you search how to become an effective ceo chief emotions officer <laughs> uh and my name or just search tim ferris chip conley and that'll pop up. right up with that book right chip has written many books and he is uh, often uh, has done a ted talk and is often a lecturer on business and just on being a more complete person and so uh chip continued throughout so the way i met chip is i cold called him i bought the san jose didn't know what i was doing had no idea what i was going to do and i saw his name like in a trade magazine and so i called him up Unbelievably, he called me back in about thirty minutes. What was? Your, did you leave a voicemail? I uh, I think oh. I did. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I think I did leave a voicemail. I don't know how I got his number? What would you have said? I have this motel <laughs> in South Austin, and I just wanted to talk to you about it. Click or something like that. Sweet of course, and simple. Yeah. Of course, I think he thought I wanted to see if he wanted to consider buying it. Um, but the fact that he called me back was I have cursed him for from this from that day to this day because now people constantly you know now they email me or in some way ask if I could spend a few minutes and for advice and you know there just aren't the hours in the day but he just pops up in my brain every time like what would have happened had he not called back <laughs> you know and I don't know but um over the years he was one of the first guests at San Jose he was passing through um he came to see it after giving advice. I went and met him in San Francisco. He looked at my numbers that I didn't really understand and tried to make sense of them. But 
I could have had that conversation. I could have that conversation now much better. Um, and then, uh, most recently, we have a hotel in Baja, California, uh, in a little town called Todos Santos, right outside a little town called Todos Santos, that is about 45 minutes from Cabo. And he is the one that got me into that because um, he had sold his hotel company and uh, was not, I, I don't know if he had a non compete or just not supposed to be in the business. And he was very interested in the community. And so he kind of pointed them in my direction. And now we have a, a really great hotel there. And Chip lives part of his life in Tonto Santos now. What, what other best practices or principles or do nots or do's have you? picked up from from chip or or other people well um actually our head our president now at bunkhouse i worked for chip for 10 years a guy named christian strobel and um you know it's good here's the thing you can be as creative as you want to be and dream as big as you want and create an incredible experience and programming and everything along those lines, but if you don't, can't keep the lights on, if you, you can't return money to investors, if you can't keep your employees happy, um, then you're never going to have a successful business. I mean, you've got to keep the lights on, you know, and you've got to do a little better than keeping the lights on, but um, I think a lot of people fail in business because they don't have operational rigor, and that can be a lot of different that can manifest in a lot of different ways. But um, I think that Chip was uh, influential from early on about uh, operations and and how important not just your guest was, but your employee and your investor as well. The Chip is, uh, and peak, I mean, as it relates to Maslow, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and hence Maslatopia, as the <laughs> name right. of the Burning Man camp, uh, is something that he would apply also to these various stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another mutual acquaintance, Larry uh, McGuire of McGuire Mormon Group here, many different restaurants. Uh, I, I texted Larry to ask him, you know, what topics or questions might I want to explore? with Liz and he said, Oh, well, there are so many things we could explore. Da, da, da. But one of the things he brought up was the, the question, how do you balance? <laughs> and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's not that far off. <laughs> uh, how do you balance wanting, uh, the desire to be an artist with the desire to be say a business tycoon? Right. It's a really interesting question. It, I mean, it's such a balance. I mean, it is, uh, Larry's actually very good at what he does. Uh, Larry has several restaurants here in town, and um, I've known Larry since he was about 16 and started work for my brother. Um, But Larry is one of those rare people that um, understands both, um, again, rigor and operations, uh, which is going to be really important at the end of the day for somebody to have the right experience and uh, the artistry of creating an experience. Um, To me, if you don't... like People make hotels, people design hotels, and then they walk away. And so that is always going to get diluted over time. If if you don't remain involved in the experience or what your vision was in the first place, then what you created 
It's, it's not just an object. It's a living, breathing thing that has employees, people that work there, that spend their lives there. It has guests that come and go as part of an ever-evolving community. And it has people that uh, have part of ownership in, in, the, in the place. So I think your vision is not complete if you just create something and walk away. It is in other, in other uh, genres of art. But in a hotel or in a restaurant, it begins anew every day in a way. And so to create a guest experience that is right for that hotel takes um you know constant vigilance in a way and um and that is always going to translate to the bottom line i mean we don't market most of our hotels in a certain way but people market them for us instagram is obviously great and um so are a lot of other social media platforms but we get a fair amount of print as well and that comes a lot not from us necessarily pitching stories but for people becoming real believers in, in what we do and so I don't know if I'm really answering that question except to say it's a, you have to have both things, whether it's you doing it or someone else that believes in your vision and you believe in theirs. You've got to have both the artistry in the beginning and the good practice to continue, and the good business practice uh, to continually uh, tend the fire. Do you have an idea of if, if you're going to be continuing to develop hotels and put your craft into the world in that way. Do you have an idea for, say, how many properties you'd like to have in five years? Uh, if you want oh, to scale, if you don't plan. want to scale, three years, doesn't really matter. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you um, have it's, something I'm, like that. It's such a crossroads right now, really, about this. Um, you, you know, the pressure in business, and the bigger your business gets is to grow, 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 and then sell it. Right. That seems to be, you know, I wonder if we'll, look, we'll be 30 years from now and that won't be the thing, or if it was, it wasn't, you know, 50 years ago. We live in a time where it's about growth and making your business worth as much as you possibly can and then selling it. And to me, that's, it, it makes no sense in the world to me because I'm a bit of a, the journey is a destination kind of person. And so if I'm, I think that I'm both doing, if I grow at an enormously rapid pace, if I push not only myself but my team to grow as fast as possible, we're not going to do the quality of work that we want to do. Um, and while we might have a higher value in five years as a company, I don't think that the end game is to sell. I, and Larry McGuire, I think, believes the same thing I do. And a lot of people that I look around at, and I'm interested in their careers and their lives, also are people that are interested in what they do from a, uh, and from the people they work with day to day. And um, creating an asset like a, a hotel that can just get better over time. Rather than say, you know, we live in a time where you have hotels that they're redone every seven years or every five years. There's a big, you know, big repositioning or whatever. It's oh, the most interesting places to me just get better as time goes on and layer upon layer and texture upon texture. And get happen. better not by reinventing themselves every seven years. Right. Exactly. It's a, what was the second title? Not a pattern language. Uh, timeless way of building. Timeless way of building. Yeah. 
So, you know, can you have a good life and make your uh, and have uh, employees who are invested in that business and ha- and also keep an asset uh, and have it, you know, this, I'm going to digress for a second, but the hotel business as we know it today is um, a result of a lot of things, but we've come to a time where most hotels are not owned by the management company. So you have a group of owners and you have a management company that is a brand. So from the Four Seasons to the Hilton to you, you name the Marriott, whatever it is, um, or in, even Ace, those guys over there, great friends of mine, every Ace you look at is owned by a different ownership group. And, uh, you know, you, you can talk all day long about why that is. Uh, a lot of times a management company wants to say, stay asset light because the hotel business is, uh, you know, in, in waves. So you don't want to get caught in a downturn owning a property, so et cetera, et cetera. You, So you mitigate your risk by and having... And you're growing a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, um, that's easier or much easier when you are a Marriott and you're going to be the same everywhere. And you have, and, and there, was a, there was a time in hotel business that, or a time in hotels and those of us as consumers of hotels wanted that because there, before that you could you know, take a trip across country and all these hotels were independent and God knows what you might find or it might be delightful or it might be horrible. And there was no way of judging the quality of a place. And then we got Hiltons and Holiday Inns, and what was great is that you could, you knew what to expect. Yeah, you knew no. the level of service. Well, the cup of Starbucks is the same everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah, and we, and so you, you can depend on that. I, I read something from I was I was look the other day I was looking at some stuff about why musicians in hotels, you know, why that love story and the, they're interdependent in one way or the other. And somebody was saying, I don't remember, it was probably Keith Moon or somebody who was well known for just totally trashing hotel rooms. It's like, yeah, it's the fifth, you know, this is like, it's the 20th fucking Holiday Inn, you know, we've woken up in and just as many days and they all look the same. Anybody would be mad at it. <laughs> but... Uh, that time that time began to change with you know what we think of as a boutique hotel or a lifestyle hotel, from Schrager to Chip Connolly. You know, I think you you asked me about what do the next three five years hold? What's my plan, business wise or hotel growth wise? Um, and it's I feel like I'm at such a crossroads there, and and trying to determine what's it's not only what's best for me. It's also what's best for the company, but also the people I work with every day. And so you want to grow because you want to be able to give the people you work with more equity, um, more chance for uh, more of a chance for um, you know higher fulfillment, uh, moving into other jobs, just all those things. You want to. Con- I think that we have a natural a natural propensity toward growth. But then the question becomes how fast and how much and what's th- what is the end game there? And in this business, I think in, in this day and age, people just mindlessly want to grow and explode. The bigger you are, the better you are. The more people know about you, the better. But it, I think that a lot of the qualities that you appreciate in day-to-day living become lost. I think one of the reasons we're successful as a company 
internally at least, is because we are like a family in some ways. And so how much can you maintain that as well? I guess the answer is I, I don't want to mindlessly grow. I want to thoughtfully grow. And that may not be at the pace that a lot of companies would want you to grow. And it's also about the end game. And I don't think my end game would be to grow really fast and to sell the business which is you find a lot of brands want to do now. Well, it sounds uh, also to me, just based on what you've been saying, that your kind of philosophical lens through which you view your life, which is the journey, is the destination, is uh, a fundamental juxtaposition with what a lot of external pressures would want to impose on the business. Absolutely. <laughs> it's so true. It's tricky. No, it's, it's such a balance, and, and it's a struggle in a way... Um, it is, but you know, some of it, it, there there are outside pressures, there are inside pressures, um, but uh, it it's a really good question because I'm in the middle of it right now, and I have lots of thoughts about it, but it could go on and on and on. But I do know that I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, you know, and uh, and we all could, and you're not going to care about that IPO, you know, five right. years from now. Um, my wife is pregnant, and uh, gonna have, I, I'm older, and she's young enough to be pregnant, clearly. And, um, and that's a whole other life change. I also, again, when you see, you know, I do really, am a big believer in the realization of mortality. I mean, all those things really point me in the direction of uh, living a quality life with in relationship to other people and in those ways I, I think it's you find meaning much more in a much more real manner than you find meaning in making a lot of money i agree i mean money is supposed to be fuel uh in a, in a sense for transferring it transmuting that into other things like experiences and so on, uh, ostensibly, right? I mean, it's a money is a representation of value. I'm not against money, and it's no, a, no, no, super yeah. important for a business, and it's super important for the people you work with and for, and all those things. It's just the means to the end, you know. No, it is. I mean, if we right. look at uh, there's a there's a really fascinating book called The Biography of a Dollar, or The Biography of a Dollar, which walks through the history of money in some <laughs> respects, which becomes even more interesting when we start looking at more recent developments like cryptocurrency and so on. But at the end of the day, uh, at least traditionally speaking, it's a medium of exchange. And so then the question is, for what? in exchange for what? Right. Uh, so let, me, let me ask just a handful more questions okay. uh, because uh, I think we could have many, many more conversations and hopefully this isn't the last. Uh, we, we mentioned a few books. Are there any other books that you have gifted often to other people or reread a lot yourself? <laughs> I love that you asked that question that way because um, it really puts it in a different perspective. Uh, it's like not what your favorite book is, it's what you've given as gift, um, which I thought about a little bit this morning. And I mean, it's so clear, immediate, like I have an immediate answer. And then I had to think, why did I do that? But um, I think when I was younger, and, and still to this day, I sometimes gift... Uh, a book of poetry by Adrian Rich called A Dream of a Common Language. A Dream of a Common Language. A Common Language. Yeah. Which was a book written she wrote in the in the late seventies. And she's a poet that um 
I was trying to think why was that book so important to me. And it's really funny when I read Cheryl Strayed's uh, Wild. That was one of the books that was most important to her that she had as she hiked the Pacific Rim. That's right. I totally yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. Um, I gift a lot Slouching Towards Bethlehem, a book by Joan Didion, which is a collection of essays that I love that book so much. And it's a lot about how what the kind of writing Joan Didion is doing. Um, and those essays are both... You know, of the time, there's one that's about John Wayne. There's, you know, about California. But there's also this uh, collection of personal essays she does that one's called On Keeping a Notebook that I go back to again and again, and I share a lot. There's one called... On Keeping a Notebook. On Keeping a Notebook. There's one called On Self-Respect. There's one on morality. But it's a it's an awesome collection of essays, um, and there are other books by Joan Didion, but that's one I tend to gift the most. You know, the other one that I'm sure people mention to you, I can't imagine they don't, is um, When Things Fall Apart by Pima Chodron. Does anybody recommend that? That has come up, I think, only once. And I'm, I'm, Seth, I apologize if I'm misattributing, but he, he does recommend Pema Chodron, at least one of her audiobooks. Yeah. But no, this is not a um, book that has come up a lot. So if you really? could explain why so that So Things book, Fall Apart, I think, has been important apart. to me. I've given to people in my life because it had an impact on me. But it's, um, I, I don't know, I could be wrong, that it was um, Pema Chodron's first uh, shot across the bow. I mean, it, it might have been the first book she did. I don't know if that's true or not. But it was really my introduction into uh, our, the Pima Children, for the, those of you who don't know, is a Buddhist monk who became a Buddhist monk, I think, probably 30 years ago. Um, when she had, when her husband, she found out her husband was having an affair and he left her. And she was left in this place of what to do about that. And she kind of accidentally found her way into Buddhism. But um, to me, it really revealed this struggle we have day to day of in the face of anything, loss, adversity, all those kinds of things, you know, how much, how uh, we tighten up and struggle or we get angry or we get bitter or we just continue doing the same things over and over that don't necessarily work watching TV, movies as an escape, drinking, even exercise sometimes. I mean, whatever it is we're doing um, and how uh, we always think if we would just get to that next perfect place, it would all be okay. Like if we had the next job or if we moved to this new city or if we just had this relationship, it was, it'd all be okay. And then it, it, as it turns out, when you get to that place, lo and behold, on the next horizon is you feel uncomfortable because you need this next thing. And it's really the idea of, um, it, it, again, the journey is a destination, being able to, to on, on the way to that island, row, rowing across the ocean, you need to get find comfort in uh, being on that boat in the roiling sea. Uh, and, and the idea of impermanency and how, I think anybody who's lived their life with loss or death or anything of the sort understands what a what a jolt it is to figure to understand that things aren't permanent and that when we do accept the impermanency of things and learn how to live in the moment or on the roiling sea and live with that discomfort uh, it really cha- it's a life changer and so 
when things fall apart. I realized just in saying all that, the Joan Dinian book, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, is taken from the same poem, the Yeats poem, uh, Slouching Towards Bethlehem. What's it called? Um, is it Slouching Towards Bethlehem, right? Oh, God, you're far more literate than I am. I'm, f- <laughs> I'm failing my <laughs> my exam here. We'll, we'll definitely put things it in- fall apart. The center cannot hold. It's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll put uh, we'll put all of these in the show notes. And we've talked about mortality a few times. Uh, I've had quite a bit of revisiting mortality in the last few years with very close friends, and uh, uh, even now, currently, uh, some uh, effectively family members. And I have a coin that sits on my kitchen counter, which says memento mori. Remember you're going to die with iconography on it. Uh, coincidentally enough, I should give him credit made by a friend of mine here, Ryan holiday, who's an author, uh, in the Austin area who writes a lot about stoic philosophy, which is highly compatible with a lot of Buddhist thought and contemplative practice in my experience. In any case, uh, do you have a favorite Favorite's a weird word to use here, but a favorite failure or a failure that you feel like taught you a lot or set you up for later success? Um, it's, I've failed so often, and um, I've been successful very often, too. I think if, you, if it were a formative uh, favorite failure, um, but, and again, yeah, you know, sometimes don't we all feel like we're beating our head against the wall? And you like, you why am I doing that same thing over again? I mean, that's a whole. I think I'm still doing that. That's a whole other subject. But you know, when I was young, when I was in high school, I was, um, I was in. There was a a thing called uh, youth and government, and you from all over Texas. They did it in other states as well, but you would learn about government by. This kind of mock government thing, and um, it, it came through the YMCA tour, and there were like little social clubs and all of that. But using government was um, something I got involved in uh, when, probably when I was a sophomore, junior in high school. When I was a senior in high school, I ran for youth governor of the state of Texas, which was you know, it's a big state. But you had to you had to run on a local level, and then you had to run in a regional level, and then you came to state. And my grandfather at the time was a rancher, um, uh, and one of the men I admire most um, was at the time older, and I think I think at that point he had broken his hip and he was in uh, uh, bed bound at home. But as I ran for youth governor, I would read the paper with him on a pretty regular daily basis, if not every other day, and discuss current events and current issues. And it was an awesome period of time uh, having those discussions with him. And we came here to Austin for the Youth and Government Week, and they they do it at the Capitol. And they do it in the chambers, so in the Senate and in the in the the House of Representatives, and uh, it's right after the uh, the the real thing has let out. And so, you it's you know really awesome because you're in these great big hallways and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I ran for youth governor, and the night that um, they already taken the vote, we're staying in a hotel right over here, not far from here at all, the La Quinta over there. And I was staying in a room with three friends who were there for the party, for sure. I was very serious. They were there to be in Austin. One of them had an older boyfriend who lived here in Austin. So they started drinking in the room. 
And I knew that we weren't supposed to be drinking in the room, and so I left the room and went and visited some other friends down the hall. They got caught. And um, we got call- I got called to, you know, whoever our supervisor was, and she said, did you know they were drinking? And I was like, yeah, I knew, and I left. Well, it turns out that the whole thing was running on the honor system. I, I'm sure I knew that at the time. And because I did not report them, I was kicked out and sent home with them. And by that point, they knew that I had won the election for youth governor of the state of Texas, which meant that, like, in the next year, you were going to go to nationals and we were do all this stuff. But instead, so the morning of uh, the announcement, you know, went to the next person in line, and I was sent home on a bus with them, you know, sitting with them. And um, when my mom went to report to my grandfather what had happened, because he was following play-by-play, he said, tell Liz we're really proud of her. And to me, that was uh, this formative moment of realizing that there were rules and there was authority. um, And, you know, the honor system was what this whole system was running on. And it was a system I was, you know, a part cog and wheel in. And I realized that he was really proud of me because I'd grown up with brothers and with, you know, a whole community that really believed that you didn't rat on somebody else. You didn't call somebody out. It was right to remove myself. But I I think there was a whole system of belief that uh, I'd grown up with that it would have been wrong just to run and tell on somebody else. And I think it was the first time that I, you know, over the years and looking back at it, I think I learned more from this thing going wrong than I would have learned from it going right. And it was about questioning systems and questioning values. Um, just because somebody feeds, says this is the, these are the rules and this is what it is, doesn't mean that that's really the rules you need to incorporate. You know, That's a great story. <laughs> what a lovely experience. Also, not that particular uh, time in the capital, but with your, it was your grandfather, you yeah. said, right? Yeah. That sounds so great. I never had that chance. My, uh, my grandparents passed, uh, all of them when I was very young. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I was lucky that way. Yeah. That's, and they, and we all lived in different States. So even, even when they were alive, we only got to see them very briefly. Uh, you know, just, just a few more questions. Uh, if you had gigantic billboard, metaphorically speaking, right? To on which I you think c- I do actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you had an additional billboard uh, on which you could put a word, a quote, a question, anything non-commercial, just a message to get out to millions or billions of people, what might you put on that billboard? Um, you know, we do over down by the San Jose and the Austin Motel. There is a big billboard, but of course, we rent it to uh, advertisers. Um, but on the side of, um, there are a couple things on the side of Joe's. One is that iconic, I love you so much, that people take pictures of all the time. Some, it's, a, it's a longer story. But on the back side of Joe's, there is a quote from Jack Kerouac that says, don't break your tenderness. And I love that quote. I think that's a good thing for everybody to remember. Don't well. break your tenderness. Don't break your tenderness. Yeah, I love that. I've never actually heard that before. Yeah, I think it's something we all. So this is right on the backside of Joe's mm-hmm. on on uh, South Congress. Yes, yeah. it's in, when you're in the, when you're sitting there, you can see it. It's kind of blue on the on the corrugated, so it doesn't bounce out. Maybe we need to repaint it. But it's been there since we opened. 
It's from I think Mexico City Blues. Well, and in in a very real way, I know you you wouldn't take full credit for this, and there were macro forces at work and so on. But the fact that I the first thing I just thought to myself was, wow, I should go check that out next time I go for a nice walk down South Congress. I mean, if you had not looked out or perhaps gazed across the street from the Continental and taken the San Jose upon yourself as a project, who knows what that neighborhood would look like? I mean, you have played a formative role in making it what it is. That's a big, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, we could talk for hours about that too. You know, I think it's about to change yet again. I mean, it would have changed and it would have grown and everything is always changing and neighborhoods are always changing. But, um, you know, I think we're about to see a, a whole next wave of South Congress happen. Oh, I agree. Just, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to see it. Yeah. Well, Liz, this is so fun, and I'm really glad that we finally had a chance to, to sit Me down. Uh, do you have any requests of the audience, asks of the audience, suggestions of the audience, anything you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, but... Uh, no, but I'm very excited about getting last days of the San Jose out there. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, we were just chatting uh, in between uh, a brief uh, cut that we made about a handful of things that probably need to be done just in terms of clearing rights yes. and music and so on. So for those people listening, it might not be immediate, <laughs> but we did clink tea glasses. So last days... Sooner than never. Of San Jose, sooner than <laughs> never. Yes, that is something that I think we're both comfortable uh, committing to. And people can find you at the Liz Lambert on Instagram and Twitter, at Bunkhouse Hotels, Instagram and Twitter, and bunkhousegroup.com. Definitely, if you're in the Austin area, and if you have never been to Austin, for God's sake, take a visit. It's, uh, it's a very cool town. The uh, self-proclaimed but believable uh, live music capital of the world. <laughs> and uh, it's been really lovely spending time with you, you today. You too, as well. It really has been. Thank you. And for everybody listening and watching, potentially, links to everything we've discussed Maybe even the doc. We'll see how much progress we make is uh, available on the uh, page with show notes uh, for this episode and every other at tim.log forward slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening and watching. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun for the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the, uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out. And just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Peloton, and I'd heard about Peloton over and over again, but I ended up getting a Peloton bike in the whole system after I saw my buddy Kevin Rose. I've known him forever, some of you know, and he showed up at my gate at my house a while back, and he looked fantastic. 
And uh, I asked him, I said, dude, you look great. What the hell have you been up to? Because he's always doing a weird diet or another, but it only lasts like a week or two. So he always regresses to the mean after like 75 beers. And he said, I've been doing Peloton five days a week. Now that caught my attention because Kevin does nothing five days a week. And you know I love you, Kevin. But it really piqued my curiosity, ended up getting a system, and it's become an integral part of my week. I love it, and I really didn't expect to love it at all because I find cycling really boring usually. But Peloton is an indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You don't have to worry about fitting classes in your schedule or making it to a studio with some type of commute, etc. New classes are added every day, and this includes options led by elite New York City instructors in your own living room. You can even live stream studio classes taught by the world's best instructors or find your own favorite class on demand. And in fact, Kevin and I rarely do live classes, and you can compete with your friends, which is also fun. Kevin, I'm coming after you. But we usually just use classes on demand. I really like Matt Wilpers and his high-intensity training sessions that are shorter, like 20 minutes. And I think Kevin's favorite is Alex, and everyone seems to have their favorite instructor, or you can select by music, duration, and so on. Each Peloton bike includes a 22-inch HD touchscreen, performance tracking metrics. I think that, along with the real-time leaderboard, are the main reasons that this caught my attention when cycling never had caught my attention before. It's really pretty stunning what they've done with the user interface to keep your attention. The belt drive is quiet and it's smaller than you would expect. So it can fit in a living room or an office. I actually have it in a large closet, believe it or not. And it fits with no problem. So Peloton is offering all of you guys, listeners of the Tim Ferriss Show, a special offer. And it is actually special. Visit One Peloton, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N, OnePeloton.com, and enter the code TIM, all caps, T-I-M, at checkout to receive $100 off accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. Now, you might say, meh, accessories? Wait, I don't need fancy towels or whatever other supplemental bits and pieces. No, the shoes you need. You need the clip-in shoes, and those are in the accessory category. So this $100 off is a very legit $100 off. So if you want to get in your workouts, if you want a convenient and really entertaining way to do high-intensity interval training or anything else, or you just want to get a fantastic gift for someone, check out Peloton. OnePeloton.com and enter the code TIM. Again, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com and enter the code TIM at checkout to receive $100 off any accessories, including the shoes that you will want to get. Check it out. OnePeloton.com, code TIM. This episode is brought to you by Soothe.com, the world's largest on-demand massage service. I have been broken so many times over the years that I usually have body work done at least once a week. I have a very, very high bar for this type of thing, and I was very skeptical of Soothe until I tested them not once, but I would say at least a dozen times around the country in different cities. I do not accept anything less than excellent for any type of soft tissue treatment, and I would not suggest that you accept anything less than excellent. So I can affirm personally that Soothe delivers a licensed, experienced, and above all effective, in my book, 
massage therapist in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. So you can think of it as Uber for massages, available in 55 cities worldwide at this point, across the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Australia, so you can relax just about anytime, anywhere. And I've tried many different types of massage that they offer, and the process is super, super simple. Download the Soothe app, that's S-O-O-T-H-E, or go to soothe.com. Choose the kind of massage you want. You can select Swedish, sports, deep tissue, or even couples massage. I usually do deep tissue myself. Or I'll do couples massage and then tell both of the therapists that I'm actually intending to get a four-handed massage instead of having two people get two-handed massages, if that makes sense. Then you set the length of your massage, whether 60, 90, or 120 minutes. If you're looking to get fixed, I usually do 90 or ideally 120. You select the gender of your therapist, and then boom, you're done. And you will see who picks up the call. The service is available from 8 a.m. to midnight, and Soothe brings everything that you need to create a spa experience in your home. And the therapist handles all of this. The massage table, linens, oils, music, the whole nine yards. So try it out. Download Soothe. And as a listener of this show, you'll get $25 off of your first massage when you enter the code TIM25, all caps, T-I-M-2-5. Again, download the Soothe app and use the code TIM25 for your $25 discount.